0: We welcome the radio audience to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you today a message of how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and on radio and on Twitter with the message that Jesus is alive today. Now before we start today, let me just stop and say Happy New Year. We wish each of you, our listeners, many blessings in this year to come. Our New Year's verse for you comes from Isaiah forty-three eighteen and 19. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And we'll talk more about that today. But as we go into this new year, do not dwell on the past. God's doing a new thing, and he, we, we pray that blessing over you today, that He'll do a new thing. Today's lesson is titled, God's Grace and Our Good Works. It comes from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Now, when I was in Bible school, I took a class called hymnology, and I remember my teacher, Miss Drake, telling us how we could reinforce a lesson or a sermon with the lyrics of a hymn. And at the time, I, I really didn't believe her, and actually I didn't care To be brutally honest, I had just taken this hymnology class for an easy A. Yet today I find myself doing exactly what she said, talking to you about one of the most popular hymns and Christian songs in the world, called Amazing Grace. Now as I prepared for this lesson and I searched for information and reviewed about this hymn, I found that it's sung over 10 million times a year. I also found a little bit of history, It was written back in 1773 by John Newton to illustrate a New Year's Day sermon. Now, it probably didn't have music back then, but was chanted by the congregation, read more like a poem. Now, John Newton was a slave trader, and he got saved and became a church pastor over in England. He wrote this hymn for one of his sermons, and the hymn was later published in 1779 with a group of hymns but the song really didn't catch on until really the second awakening which was around 1835 and even then uh, it it caught on because they put a well-known pub tune or a song called new britain to it and that's probably the tune you know today when you sing amazing grace now the tunes changed over 240 times since that the words, the theme, have not changed. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. See, in today's lesson, we'll see how Paul talks about this amazing grace, how we are saved by grace, not by works, but how we are saved by grace to do good works. Before I get into the text today, just like before, we'll be on every Sunday morning at 9.05, right after the ABC News. Then we'll have a rebroadcast at 4 and 10 p.m. on Sunday, and at 2 p.m. on Wednesdays. Now we invite your comments regarding the Radio Bible Class discussion. Write us at the Radio Bible Class, P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. You can also email us your comments or any questions you may have. The email address is rbc at wmerworldwide.com. And last, you can tweet us. You can tweet us at Radio Bible Class, or you can tweet me directly at tcarter12. Also follow us on Twitter, that's at Radio Bible Class, or follow me personally, at tcarter12. Or you can follow the radio station at Worldwide. If you'd like a copy of this lesson or any previous lesson, just let us know. We'll be glad to send it to you. Christian Radio is not free. If you enjoy this radio ministry, your offering to this ministry will aid in the expense of keeping the radio Bible class on the air as a witness for Jesus. You can send your gift to Word Talk Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. Your gift to Word Talk Inc. is IRS approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Jesus said in Luke 6.38, Give, and it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, and shaken together and running over. Now finally, we want to send you a free copy of Signpost on the Road to Armageddon. Again, we need your information, but you can give us that stuff by either writing us or tweeting it to us, or emailing us, or you can call the recorded line at 601-207-1391. That's 601-207-1391. And when I was growing up, I remember thinking that if my parents loved me, they wouldn't discipline me. For them to discipline me went against loving me, or at least that's what I thought. I remember the phrase my dad used to say, Son, I love you, and this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. See, I really couldn't grasp the real meaning of that statement. I kept thinking, if he loved me, then he wouldn't spank me or he wouldn't punish me. See, love and discipline could not coexist in my mind. Now, today, my outlook couldn't be more opposite. I'm thankful for my dad and my mom and the discipline that they they showed me. And I've learned not only can love and discipline coexist, but they're inseparable from one another. Now, as a child, what looked like odds actually wasn't. You know, when you read the Bible, you have the same experience. There are truths that seem to contradict one another, you know, but they really don't. For example, the Bible says God is completely sovereign over all things. But it also says human beings are completely responsible for their actions. Another one is Jesus was 100% God and yet at the same time 100% man. And last, human authors wrote the Bible, yet every single word is inspired by the Word of God. See, these seem incompatible, yet they coexist, and they can coexist. People say if you really believe in God's grace, then good works don't matter at all. Or if you believe in good works are a good thing, then make sure you're faithful, because if you're not, then you may not get God's grace. These two truths are not at odds, they are actually inseparable. Hopefully by today you will see that. Now if I were to ask you what does it mean to be saved, how would you answer that? You hear it's it's really simple, you just have to say a simple prayer. If you really can't answer that question, or at least hopefully you would agree that being saved is foundational to everything else in Christianity. Because of that very fact, Satan is always attacking the gospel and what we believe. And if he can get us off track on salvation, everything else gets really messed up. Now, Paul teaches us some solid doctrine today. That word doctrine makes some people really uneasy and nervous. It sounds so academic and so theological. But really, doctrine is just teachings and the belief of the church. And one of the pillars we stand on is the doctrine of grace. And I hope by the end of this lesson today, you'll have a solid understanding of what grace is And grace is so powerful, yet so simple. It's easy to understand how God loves us because we love other people. But it's harder to understand grace because grace is counterintuitive to our human nature. We defined last week that grace is getting what we don't deserve. See, grace is given to the guilty by God. Yet, we want to give those same people what they deserve. We want want to see them get their punishment. Our nature is that they should have to pay back, that they should have to work off their guilt. But that's not how God works, and that's not how grace works. Now let's review last week real quickly. In the first seven verses of Ephesians 2, Paul's painted a picture of what our life looked like before God and what salvation is and given to us in Jesus Christ. You begin to see there's no way we could be saved apart from God's grace. It must have been God's grace and not our good works because in chapter 2, verse 1, we're told, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. See, we were dead, not sick, not sort of dead, but spiritually dead. Paul starts off with something very difficult, and he says that roughly we were the walking dead. Now, it must have been God's grace and not our good works because in chapter 2, verse 2, we are told we walk in the world with Satan. See, we were in a place where God's not honored and talked about, where Jesus Christ is not worshipped. It must have been God's grace and not our good works because in chapter 2, verse 3, we are told of our very passions, our lust of the flesh, our deep desires, and what we want most in this life puts us at odds with God and makes his wrath come to us. Now today, that's not very popular to talk about God's wrath and hell, and everyone wants to focus on God's love and how he loves us. And that's true. That's very, very true. But there will come a day when God says no more. You may ask then, how can a God of love have wrath? God has made a way to escape hell. It's up to us, though. We have to believe on him. See, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's not for you to face that wrath if you so choose. But if you so choose not to believe, then you will face that wrath one day. See, God doesn't want anyone to perish, but because of our free will, we must choose to believe in Him. See, so in verses 1 through 3, we saw the depths of our trespasses and sins. Then when we saw verses 4 through 7, how God resurrected us, from being spiritually dead, and he sets us up seated with Christ in the heavenlies. See, God unites us with Christ. Jesus died so we could receive everything that he receives. Everything, the resurrection that Christ did, we get because we are resurrected with him. See, his father becomes our father. His spirit becomes our spirit. His life becomes our life. His righteousness is now our righteousness. God's love for him is now God's love for us. And Jesus' eternal destiny of ruling over everything is now our eternal destiny with him. Now let's jump into our text. Start at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's two things that are abundantly clear, I think, out of this text. One, our salvation is dependent totally on grace and not works. Two, salvation will produce good works, but good works doesn't produce salvation. Now let's look at verse 8, which is very clear that we are saved by grace. And it just says that, for by grace you have been saved through faith. See, I want to stop right here. Paul is showing us the path to salvation. It's not a path we have to hike, but a path God leads us down. We've been saved by grace. The challenge today is most people don't believe that they need to be saved. If you ask anyone the question, why should God let you in heaven? The answer most often you hear is, I've tried to be a good person or I'm a good person. I've never hurt anyone intentionally. I've lived a good life. Even many Christians who attend church believe this also. Surveys show that the majority of professing Christians agree the same thing. The best way to get to God is to sincerely live a good life. But that's not what the Bible teaches. See, when we admit we need to be saved, we admit we cannot save ourselves. In our culture today, we're in a Self made, we're in a independent, in a self help, but the whole doctrine of grace jumps right in your face when you have to admit you can't save yourself. You see, it's having to accept that there's nothing we can do that makes ourselves good enough to receive God's grace. And then you notice in verse 8, he says, We are saved. But listen to the definition of salvation deliverance from sin and spiritual consequences. And most people get this. Most folks would say, my sins have been forgiven and I'm not going to hell. That's what uh, saved or salvation means. But there's more. See, when we become a part of the kingdom, part of the body of Christ, Jesus taught this to Nicodemus when he told him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was a devout man. He was moral. He was a religious man, but he was still spiritually dead. See, my point is, only God imparts life and we can't be good enough. We can't do enough to save ourselves. Now, this is only possible through the grace of God. No one can save themselves. Jesus is the one who seeks those who are lost. The Holy Spirit works on our heart, and he convicts us, shows us that we need a Savior. Now, look at the second half of that verse 8, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. See, Paul tells us it's a gift of God, not our own doing. So, we don't we don't want our salvation to come to us solely through faith. We want to believe that we brought something to the table that we that we have value, and you are valuable to God. We'll see that in a minute. But there's nothing you bring to the day, table. It's a gift. We can't pay for it. It's a gift. Now I don't know if you celebrate birthdays, but at my house we do. And every year that per on that person's birthday, we are close to it. You know, we'll go have a party. We'll go out. Maybe we'll eat. We'll definitely give gifts, but wouldn't it be weird at the end of that night if your son or your daughter or my son and daughter came up to me and said, hey, dad, thanks so much, but how much do I owe you for all this? See, I don't expect that, and God doesn't expect that because it's a free gift. It's like that with God, too. It's a gift. It's free. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to try to pay for it. See, your mindset is saying that God didn't do enough. He didn't do a complete work at the cross when you say you have to add to it. But that's not the case. Now, Martin Luther, who was was part of the Reformation back in the 1800s, used to say, Faith alone saves you. Not works, not church, not morals, but faith alone in the grace of, of God through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is very clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now saving faith is not vague, not general belief in God. It's not merely agreeing with certain facts. Saving faith has three elements. And the first one is saving faith includes knowledge. It also includes truth. And it includes trust. Those are the three elements. See, to be saved, you first need to know about God. You must know that he sent his son to earth to die on a cross. bear our sins that we would have to die for yet god raised him up so he became man a perfect sacrifice no sin he dies god raised him up so we don't have to die so that's fact number one you have to understand that and understand that he died for your sins now the second fact is you must agree and believe that those facts are true now an example would be a student can know the facts well enough to pass a test but may not know the facts are true or false, right? They can just know what the teacher said, so they wrote it down, but they don't know if they're really true. That's important as well. We need to believe. Not only do we need to know, but we need to believe that they are true. And now there's a third one. But see, if the first two were all you needed to be saved, then even Satan and the demons would be saved because they know about God and they know what happened and they know it's true. But see, there's a third part. And the last is the hardest for all of us. You have to put your trust in Jesus as your Savior or Lord. You may, let me give you one more example of that. This was explained to me one time that you you may know that a plane can fly, that it's mechanically sound. And you can believe that it'll fly, but to get to your destination, you have to get in the plane. You have to trust that plane, and then you fly there. See, there's no real faith without trust. We have to trust God and we have, a lot of people know about God and they believe in God and they know God will do things for them, but they don't trust him. See, they put him back in a box and they put him on the shelf. For sake of time, we'll move on to verse nine, not as a, a result of works so that no one may boast. The people who got most angry with Jesus during his ministry weren't the immoral people. It was the moral ones, the faithful ones, The consistent ones. See, he told them their works, their discipline, their consistency, and their morals didn't do anything. See, he wasn't impressed with that. He said they were abiding a law, and the law was to show us that we are guilty. Now look at that no one may boast. See, if there was anything we could do to bring salvation to us, it would bring harm to us. As human beings, we love to take pride in what we do. God knows this. He knows if we had any part to do with it, we would puff out our chest and our heads would get big. But once we did that, we would go around bragging about it. And see, it'd be no longer about God, but it'd be about us. We would be walking around bragging. Now, what did you do for our salvation? See, I can hear that. What did you do? Oh, is that all you did? Here's what I had to do. But see, it's a 100% complete gift from God. So we have to focus on Him, not us. See, that's where God wants our eyes. He wants them focused on Him. He wants our eyes focused on Him because not only does He provide the faith, but He wants us to walk in that grace daily, dying to ourselves and living through Him. When we try to do things in our own strength, we stumble and fall. And, and God knows that, so He made it so it's a free gift, so that we wouldn't try to do it in our own strength and stumble and fall before man. Okay, let's look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Now, this verse clearly shows us that God cares about good works, but he cares about them after you're saved. See, good works flow from our salvation. Good works come after we're saved. See, good works can't do anything to save us, but they're a result and they show that we were made alive. Now let's dive into verse 10. We are his workmanship. Just about every Christian can quote Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. So we need to commit verse 10 of Ephesians 2 in our mind. Why? Because I believe it's the New Testament version of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. If you look at that word workmanship, in the Greek, it is poema, which is where we take our word poem from. And, you know, Paul was specific about selecting that word. He only used it one other time in the Bible, and that was in Romans 1.20. Now, poetry is considered an art or a masterpiece. So, poema, we are poetry or we're a masterpiece to God. See, my wife's been telling me that for many years, and I'm a piece of work. No, but for real, just like the potter molds and shapes a vessel to make his art, God shapes and molds us. You're probably saying, I'm boring. There's nothing special about me. That's not true. God created you for a purpose. God made you special. Without question, man is God's greatest creation and his crowning achievement. But more than that, God is saying, you are my work of art. You are my poem. You are my masterpiece. You are more beautiful than any place of nature, than any sunset, and any ma- animal or, or even an angel. See, Hebrews even tells us we are greater than any angel. See, we are God's greatest work. When he talks about the work, he's really talking about his, not his creation, but the second work he did in our lives. See, that's the greatest work that he sent his son who died and rose again and now we have a way to overcome that separation. See, God's greatest work and the work he's most proud of in our life is that redemption work. Us coming back to him. See, when we, are, we were born into sin, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are created a new creature. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away and behold, all things become new. His greatest work was his son's finished work on the cross. But God's made you unique. See, there's no one else like you. God is not done with you yet. Philippians 1.6 says, For he that has begun a good work in you will complete it until the end of days. That is what is known as sanctification. That's another doctrine. See, God's continual work of molding and making us in his image of Jesus Christ. God has so much desires to do this amazing work. And the question is we have to ask ourselves, are we resisting that work? Now if you look back at verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which were prepared beforehand, so grace of God produces good works in a person. When we are made new in Christ Jesus, we produce good works. We were created for good works. Good works come after salvation. God wants to do a work in us so we can do a good work in him, for him. See, God isn't just satisfied with making us a better person. He has a plan for our life. See, Jeremiah 29 and 11 said that, For I know the plan I have for you, declares the Lord. See, God has a plan for you, and it's to do good works. God has stuff in store for your life. It doesn't matter what you do for a profession. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Once we receive the grace of Jesus Christ in our life, He starts a work in us. He has a plan, and He's designed us for His glory and to expand His kingdom. It doesn't take education or experience. All it takes is availability. See, uh, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the call. 2 Peter 1.3 says, By His divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know Him, the One who called us to Himself by means of His marvelous glory and excellence. See, God has a plan and he's prepared it beforehand. And once we accept salvation, we become a new creature and his Holy Spirit leads us and he plugs us into the plan and the path. You're probably saying, but Tim, my past. See, it doesn't matter. You're a new creature. God can use your past for good works in the future. We often have feelings and attachments to the past. The past is hard to let go And it affects us emotionally, but we need to see ourselves as God sees us. I want to take you to Acts 10, 9 through 15. The next day as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on a flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by his four corners. In the sheets, there were all sorts of animals and reptiles and birds. And then a voice said to him, "Get up, Peter, kill and eat them." No, Lord Peter declined, declared, "I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean." And this is what I want you to hear. But the voice of God spoke and said, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. See, you're a new creature. God has made you clean. God has saved you. He's taken you from the walking dead. He's resurrected you. He's lifted you up in Christ Jesus. He's made you new. So don't live in the past. Let it go. God has. See, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has created beforehand that we should walk in them. And that really means just putting one foot in front of the other. It doesn't say that God will tell us the path or even the direction we're going to go that day. All He asks is that we put one foot in front of the other and follow Him, that we trust Him. See, as He's making us into His work, as He's sanctifying us, He's laying out a plan that He's already prepared before us. Now, some people, he can trust more, and he reveals more of that plan. For, for most of us, and especially me, he reveals it one step at a time. See, if he revealed any more to me, I would no longer walk. I would run. And all of a sudden, I'm no longer walking with God, but I'm walking in my own strength. I just want to finish with this. It's a matter of us taking that first step of faith and trusting and believing in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And then it takes a daily step of trusting God. Okay, God, whatever you have for me, I will walk through that door and I'll do whatever you want. When we do, God will reveal himself and show himself in amazing ways. We just have to understand that God is doing a work in us so that he can do a work through us so that other people can see Jesus. So let us go do that good work but let's not think the good work will get us our salvation. It should be a fruit of our salvation. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We look at these scriptures, and even though we may not fully understand your grace, we get it to a certain point. The point we don't get is why you even gave us grace. We surely didn't deserve it. Lord, we... Thank you anyway for your amazing grace. Lord, we thank you for the free gift that you've given us. Lord, that there's nothing we can do to earn it. We can't be good enough. We can't be moral enough. But we need you, our Savior. Lord, it's not us. It's you. And it's only by you that we are saved. Lord, I ask you to open our eyes, to let us see ourselves the way you see us, the way, the way you told Peter that what you, once you've called us clean, we're clean. Let the past go. Lord, for the people who heard this message today that have not given their life to you, I pray your Holy Spirit will convict them and they will turn their life over you today. Lord, that they will admit they're a sinner and they will believe in you and trust in you and they will confess you with their mouth. Lord, for those that have given their life to you, but they're not walking with you. they started and ran down the wrong path. They weren't trusting and walking every day. Lord, I'd ask that the Holy Spirit would convict them and bring them back. Lord, that they would turn their will back over to your will, and they would listen to you. Lord, we just thank you for all the blessings that you've given us. And for it's in your name we pray. We'll give you all the honor and the praise and the glory. Amen.